And if you grab your Bible, you can open it up to Colossians 1. If you have, um, if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, you'll find Colossians 1 on page 833 of that Bible. We're beginning a series hitting some highlights in the book of Colossians this month. So Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, page 833 in the Bible in the seat back in front of you. What was there before the Big Bang went bang? When scientists tell us that all matter and energy of our present universe were packed into a tiny, tiny speck of proto-universe. Was there even a there there to talk about? Was there even empty space outside of that speck, or was that speck all that was there? And where did that speck come from? Did it always exist? Was it just the results of the collapse of a previous universe, maybe the latest in a never-ending series of previous expansions and collapses? Are there other universes collapsing and expanding alongside of ours? These are the far-out questions being asked today as modern science probes the distant reaches of our beginnings. We could also think about endings. Will the universe go on expanding forever until all of its energy peters out and it slowly fades into darkness and oblivion? Or will it one day stop expanding, turn around, and begin collapsing back in on itself again? Well, those uh, possible endings are, are so far off that they hardly seem relevant. So what about closer to home? What about the future closer to now? What will life be like in 50 years or 20 years or, or five years? Will things keep getting better and better as we trade in our 3D TVs for 4D TVs and our iPhone 5s for iPhone 6s and 7s? As technology conquers every remaining frontier and, and um, every problem and inconvenience helping us to live longer and healthier and more comfortable lives? Or are we headed for disaster and, and cataclysm whether through financial collapse, or environmental catastrophe, or energy crisis, or military conflagration. Where's the world going, and, and where did it come from, and, and what's the meaning of all this, which, which can give purpose and, and sense to our lives? Those are the big questions that some of people are asking today about life. Others are content to ask more modest questions. For them, the distant past is last week. That's as far back as they can remember. And uh, the distant future is what to wear to the party Friday night. This group lives in the now. Their extent attention span is about as long as a YouTube video. And such people are looking for some comfort, some, some peace, a little help to navigate through the stresses and the challenges and the emptiness of today's world. Well, either way, whether, whether to those who are trying to make sense of, of the distant past and the looming future or, or to those just trying to get through the day, Christianity has a message. A message of hope, a, a message of, of help, a message of, of good news, a message about Jesus. But Jesus is the answer, right? Jesus made us. Jesus will come again to rescue us out of this world. And in the meantime, Jesus loves us. He wants to restore our relationship with God, to help us along the way, giving meaning and, and purpose and, and comfort and peace to our lives. But that's not quite how the Apostle Paul sees it. 
This may be the gospel the American church today preaches and believes, but it's not the gospel we find in our passage today or in the rest of the New Testament for that matter. Let me give you three reasons I say that. First, the gospel Paul preaches in today's text doesn't view humanity the way Christians tend to today. What, what uh, does it mean to be human? That's the question. As Christians today, we're quick to say that we're more than hairless apes. We're more than just evolved primates. And, and you know, most people are happy to go along with us there. Richard Dawkins, who's, who's one of the leading proponents of evolution today, complains in one of his books that, that so many of even the secular people today refuse to believe in human evolution, presumably because they feel insulted by it. And as Christians, we say, yes, yes, we're, we're created by God in, in God's image. But then we turn around and we live just like we were created to consume. And so we, we even build church ministries based on consumption, catering to, to every need and, and uh, religious desire, every taste and every preference. And we imagine a Jesus whose main reason for existence is to happily meet our every need. To, to help us feel better about ourselves, to, to ease our anxiety, to, to comfort our pain, to, to fill our emptiness. This is not the Jesus that Paul preaches. Second, the gospel that Paul preaches in today's passage doesn't view politics the way Christians today tend to. We today tend to view political realities as exclusively human and historical. And since society has chased religion out of public life and political life, we've become content to live out our religious lives in private. Sure, we may make forays into the, the political realm to argue and to advocate for Christian values and, and then to wring our hands when we fail. But while we freely say that Jesus reigns and, and Jesus is Lord in the privacy of our churches and our prayer closets, most of us don't really believe Jesus reigns in public. But this is not the way Paul sees the politics of Jesus. Third, the gospel that Paul preaches in today's passage doesn't view everyday life the way Christians today tend to. We tend to view church or our personal devotions as where the spiritual stuff happens. Sunday morning, we, we step into a, a spiritual space. We, we focus on God. We, we give God honor. We seek growth and comfort and strength from God's word so that we can go out and we can make it through another week in the secular world. For some of us, Sunday mornings isn't enough, and so we attend a Bible study where we have daily devotions for a spiritual top-up during the week. Maybe... Some of us are even envious of people like the pastor who gets to devote himself to, to spiritual concerns all week long while the, while the rest of you have to slug it out in the secular world to make a living. This is not how Paul sees everyday life. Well, where am I going with all this? In what way am I suggesting that much of Christianity today is out of step with that of Paul in the New Testament? Well, to put it in a nutshell, it has to do with whose story we're telling. The story we tend to tell today, even within the church, is our own story. Whether it's the big story of mankind in the universe or, or the small story of our individual lives, either way, we tend to focus on our own story and then try to figure out how God and Jesus fit into our story. 
But that's not what Paul does. That's not what the Bible does. After all, what is the Bible? It's God's story. It's Christ's story. And the gospel that Paul preaches and the invitation that he gives us is an invitation to get to know God's story and to figure out how to fit ourselves into that story. And that switch of stories, we'll find, changes everything. Let's look at our passage today where we, we get to see what an immense, all-encompassing, mind-blowing view of Christ and his story Paul has. We learn that Christ's story is greater than our story, even greater than the story of the universe. Starting in verses 16 and 17, we read, For in Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. Paul is saying here that before the Big Bang, Christ was there. As far as I've heard, scientists have no way of explaining how all the matter and energy which presently exists in the universe could somehow have once been packed into that infinitesimal speck. But according to Paul, we can be sure that Christ was there to make that speck. The Big Bang went bang because Christ caused it to. It was part of his plan, his purpose to speak a universe into being. It all began with Christ. And Christ was there. His story was well in progress already, even before our story began. Paul also tells us that Christ created far more than even what scientists can even get their minds around. Verse 16 speaks of things in heaven as well as on earth, things invisible as well as visible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. These powers likely refer to uh, both the principalities of this world, governments, corporations, institutions, as well as to the, the spiritual powers, often demonic in nature, which stand behind the earthly manifestations. But regardless of how all this works, how the spiritual realm interacts with the visible realm, the point is clear. Christ made it all. Christ stands at the beginning of all that is. Now, how can this be? After all, the Old Testament gives God credit for creating everything. What role did Christ play then? Well, notice the prepositions Paul uses. Verse 16, depending on your translation, says, All things were created in Christ or by Christ. And verse 17, they were created through him. Yes, God created all things, but not apart from Christ. No, Christ was there, very much involved. You could think of it this way. God spoke the word. Christ was the word. And through that word and his power and his wisdom, all that is came into being. The point is, Christ stands at the beginning of the story, his story. And not only is it in and by and through Christ that everything came into being, but verse 17, it is in Christ that everything holds together. Even now, Christ is sustaining the universe. Were Christ to remove himself for one second, the story would end like a book snapping shut. The universe would disintegrate. 
We, we can't understand how Christ sustains all that is, but modern science has lately given us some, some interesting clues and possibilities. As scientists have probed the, the microscopic and the nanoscopic depths of existence, discovering first cells, and then molecules beneath the cells, and then atoms beneath the molecules, and now subatomic particles beneath the atoms, scientists are now becoming increasingly aware of, of the close connection between matter and energy to the point that perhaps energy is integral to what matter even is. Could it be that Christ supplies that energy which allows everything to exist and to be what it is? The 90s praise song says, every breath I take, I take in you, Jesus. And Paul is here teaching us that that is far more true than we often realize. We live in Christ's story, and that story exists only because Christ goes on telling it. But there's more. Not only does the story begin in Christ, and not only is it sustained by Christ, but the story ends in Christ as well. Verse 16 again, all things have been created not just in him and through him, but also for him. This word translated for in English is the Greek preposition ice, and it can also be translated toward. In other words, the story of our existence is moving toward Christ. Christ is the, the purpose and the intended end toward which everything is inexorably heading. The universe exists for Christ. That's, that's why it's here. That's why we are here. Christ stands at the end of the story as, as the meaning of history, as the, the crown of the creation, as the ruler of the cosmos. As Paul puts it in verse 18, so that in everything he might have the supremacy when, as we'll, we saw several weeks back in Philippians 2, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, as if that weren't all amazing enough, as we get to verse 18, things get even more amazing. Here we realize that not only does Christ stand at the beginning of the story, setting it into motion, and not only does Christ sustain the story, causing it to exist and to happen, and not only does Christ stand at the end of the story, giving it meaning and purpose and consummation, but even more amazing, Christ has entered into the story personally and become a part of it. In verses 19 to 22, Paul tells how. God was pleased to have all of God's fullness dwell in the man Jesus, and through Jesus Christ's death on the cross to reconcile to him all things, even his enemies. Can you even fathom how amazing this is? As Lauren Wilkinson puts it, in the cross, we see who God is, subjecting himself to the consequences of his creation. The one who was highest above all sought out the very lowest place and went to that place to rescue us, to rescue the story. Because we had turned away from God. The story had turned its back on its own author. 
and we were heading for a disastrous ending. In fact, often it still looks like disasters ahead, doesn't it? And so God, in Christ, entered the story and embraced that disaster, absorbing it into himself so that the story could get back on track. The way Paul puts it is this. God in Christ reconciled all things to him by making peace through his blood. Do you hear that? God reconciled all things. Not just me and you. All things. Things on earth and things in heaven. Jesus is rescuing the whole story. The whole cosmos. Yes, he's my personal savior. He's your personal savior. Thank God for that. But he's also far more than that. He's the savior of the whole universe. Now, what does this even mean? How can God reconcile all things? I mean, reconcile is a personal word. Reconcile is, is, is what happens to people. People can be reconciled, but how can things be reconciled? And even with people, is Paul saying that all people, uh, that all people are or, or will be reconciled to God eventually? How, how does that square with, with the places where, where God's word is clear that, that some who don't believe in Christ will be punished at the end for their sins? Well, these are important questions which I want to at least acknowledge, even though we don't have time to fully answer them uh, in the time we have now. But, but don't miss the main point, and that is that Paul is, is straining language itself to try to, to express how big, how cosmic is the act of Christ on the cross. Christ, who, who created and who sustains the universe, came down to become small and insignificant and weak and vulnerable. To affect something so big, so all-encompassing, the, the reconciliation of the whole cosmos back to God, making peace. Won't it be great when that peace finally reigns in the world? Peace between people and God. Peace between husbands and wives. Peace between or in families. Peace in workplaces. Peace between political parties and nations. That peace is coming. And it's starting in the church. The group of people who have already put ourselves under Christ's leadership. Paul puts it, like this in verse 18, Christ is our head and we are his body. And so we're learning to follow our head's lead. We're learning to follow his purposes to work out that peace, that reconciliation in our own lives and relationships. Well, then this story, Christ's story, gets even more amazing yet again. In verse 18, Paul adds, Christ is the firstborn and the beginning, sorry, is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. This word firstborn appears up in verse 15 also, and uh, where, where Paul had, had said that Christ was the firstborn of all creation. Now he says he's the firstborn from among the dead. Firstborn is, is a royal word. It's used of kings in the Old Testament. That's because in that culture, the firstborn son was, was the preeminent one, the, the one expected to lead, the, the one who got the largest inheritance. Christ is the firstborn, the king of the first creation, 
And now we see he is the firstborn, the king, twice over. The firstborn of the new creation, too. Here in, in Christ's uh, and his resurrection, we have a, a new beginning, a new kingdom begun by Christ, the first to rise from the dead. Now, what we have to understand whenever the Bible talks about resurrection from the dead is that before Christ came, everybody knew when the resurrection would take place. They knew, just like we know, that it happens at the end of history, right? At the end of the human story, God will wrap up history by, by raising his people from the dead to live forever with him. Now today, though, we're, we're so used to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead that, that we don't realize how strange it is, even for those of us who believe in resurrection, that Jesus has already risen because Jesus wasn't supposed to rise yet. Remember, with Jesus' resurrection, we're not talking about a, just a miracle here like happened once in a great while in the Bible when, when a dead person, a great prophet came along and, and they were raised from the dead and, and they lived a few more years before dying again. No, in Jesus' case, we're talking about the real ultimate resurrection, the final resurrection where you never die again. And it happened to Jesus even though the end of history hasn't come yet when it was supposed to happen or has it come well yes it it has in Jesus the end of history has come listen carefully Jesus's resurrection was the future resurrection that we all look forward to brought back in time to now it was the future invading the present. The end of the story popping up unexpectedly in the middle of the story. It was the next story, the story after this story, beginning to happen in the midst of this story. Listen to how N.T. Wright puts it in his commentary. God brought forward the inauguration of the age to come, the age of resurrection, into the midst of the present age in order that the power of the new age might be unleashed upon the world while there was still time for the world to be saved. Power unleashed, a new age, a new creation begun, a new story. Christ is the beginning of this new story. He's the firstborn, the king of this new, res new creation. And as we'll see in Christ, we are invited into this too. Paul adds that, that Christ is the perfect king for this new creation. You remember back to, to the first creation, how it began in, in Genesis 1? God, through Christ, created the, or, yeah, created the world. And then God created man and God created woman to be the king and queen over that creation. To subdue the earth, to rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the creatures that move along the ground. Genesis 1 also says that God made man and woman in God's own image, to, to image God, to reflect what, what God is like. Just as God wisely and lovingly rules in the heavens, so God made man and woman in his image to wisely and lovingly rule for him on this earth. But we blew it, didn't we? We turned away from God to do it our own way. And so instead of harmony, we brought conflict. Instead of peace, 
war. Instead of stewardship, devastation. Instead of care for one another, poverty and deprivation. We failed. We, we failed to reflect God's image. We failed to rule well over God's creation. And so Christ came down and entered the story to, to fix what we'd broken, to, to reconcile us to God. But more than that, Christ came to begin a new story overlaid over the top of the old story. Adam and Eve were king and queen of the first creation. Christ is now king of the new creation, and we are his bride, his queen. And like Adam and Eve, Christ is the image of God. Verse 16, he's the image of the invisible God. But unlike Adam and Eve, Christ is, is a far fuller and more complete image, a more complete picture of what God is like. Verse 19 again, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. In Christ, we see a crystal clear picture of what God is like. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Christ. He's it. He is the image of the invisible God that you can't see. So in Christ, we see what God is like. In Christ, we also see what we are meant to be like. In Christ, we see a new Adam, a true human being, as human beings are meant to be. And so as we follow Christ into the new creation, and we learn to be like him, we come to be more fully human ourselves. What a story. Even if you got half of it, I know that was a lot of heavy theological stuff. But I hope that you can see how much bigger Paul's gospel is than the gospel often preached today. Because Paul's gospel isn't the good news about how Jesus fits into our story. No, it's the far greater news of how we fit into Christ's story. So in conclusion, let's go back and summarize three ways that Paul's gospel is bigger. First, Paul gives us a bigger view of humanity. Despite what you and I have crammed into our heads every day, and it's going to happen again during the Super Bowl with every commercial, human beings are not primarily consumers. Just meant to go around trying to fill our needs and our wants, including our spiritual needs and wants. Sure, we have spiritual needs, and thank God that, that Christ meets them. But we are so much more than that. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the king over the new creation, shows us who we truly are. Men and women, boys and girls, meant to lovingly rule and lead in God's new creation, helping to make peace, to, to mend what is broken, to pursue wholeness. We have a mission, and it's as big as the whole world. Second, Paul gives us a bigger view of politics. Paul helps us to realize that when we say Jesus is Lord, this isn't just a nice sentimental phrase that's fit for praise songs and Bible studies. No, it's a real political statement. Jesus' Jesus's reign is, is more real than the White House. It's more real than Fox News. As N.T. Wright put it, Jesus is the reality of which all earthly emperors are mere parodies. 
Jesus really is king twice over. First, king of creation, and second, king of the new creation. While his rule is not everywhere acknowledged yet, one day it will be. And in the meantime, it is just as real. And so we seek it. We work for it. We, we live it out. When you go to work, Jesus is Lord of your workplace. When you go to school, Jesus is Lord of your school. When you watch the news, Jesus is Lord of the corporations and the communities and the governments that plot and rage in vain. Let's just remember that, that the way we represent Jesus' lordship is, is not by pushing our power agenda, but rather by giving ourselves in service and loving sacrifice like our Lord did. That's how we represent the lordship of Jesus in all of life. No matter what society insists, our spirituality cannot be privatized because Jesus is a public Lord, a real Lord. There's no place where his reign does not pertain. Third, Paul gives us a bigger picture of everyday life. Because Christ is the real and rightful Lord of, of all creation, all of life matters to him. Every act of every day is a spiritual act. Not just church, not just prayer or, or nursery duty or uh, singing on the worship team, but also doing the laundry and having dinner with your family or friends and going to work and pursuing a hobby. It all matters to God because it is all lived in God's creation under Christ's Lordship. The gospel is bigger than we've realized. And it really is good news. So how big is the gospel that you believe? Which story is bigger for you? Your story or Christ's story? Have you been trying to, to fit Jesus' story into your story to make your story work better? Or will you let your story find its place in the much bigger story of what Christ is doing in the world.